Good morning, church. Small uh, correction to uh, our worship guides. I'm going to be preaching the first 18 verses of chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, not the first 19. In case you keep wondering, when is he going to get to 19? I'm not. I'm ready to preach 18 verses. 19 verses, you ask too much. All right. So, so long as we know. All right, so if you will, please turn in your Bibles to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. Again, we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses. And uh, hopefully today, if I speak well, and if you listen well, uh, then by the end of this sermon, we will all uh, be encouraged to hold firmly to our glorious faith with full assurance. We will hopefully also be reminded that Jesus has done everything that is needed on our behalf to deliver us from our bondage to Satan, to deliver us from the righteous judgment of God, to deliver us from our slavery to sin, and to deliver us from our own faulty ways of thinking about how we can be made right with God. Faulty ways of thinking that all of us had before becoming Christians and which many of us struggle to shrug off now that we have become Christians. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, we welcome you and hope that by the end of this sermon you would at least start to see how Christianity describes how human beings can be made right with God and how that differs from perhaps your own way of thinking about these issues and from what other world religions claim to be the way to God. Although we are not Jewish and although this book was written to a Jewish audience primarily, we can still benefit and learn many truths from this book and from this passage of scripture. However, before we see how these truths apply to our lives, we first have to understand how these truths applied to the lives of the original recipients of this letter. To be Captain Obvious for a moment, let me point out that chapter 10 is a continuation of all the previous chapters. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But more importantly, that it is specifically a continuation of the argument that our author set out to make all the way back at the end of chapter 4. If you look at chapters 1 to 4, you will see that the author of Hebrews encourages believers to be steadfast and unwavering in their faith by arguing that Jesus has brought us a superior revelation from God, that Jesus is superior to the angels, and that Jesus is better than Moses, and that the rest that Jesus offers to his followers is superior to the rest that the people of Israel were promised but failed to attain because of their unbelief and disobedience. But starting at verse 14 of chapter 4 till we get to chapter 10, the author has been dealing with a few and interrelated topics to serve the argument that he is making, again, to continue encouraging his readers to stand firm in the faith. So he zooms in to discuss the high priesthood of Jesus the high priesthood of Jesus in relation to the new and better covenant, the high priesthood of Jesus before the very throne of God, 
the high priesthood of Jesus, which is mediated through a better sacrifice, that sacrifice being his own flesh and blood. So obviously the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is trying to drill down on some key issues. He slows down his pace dramatically and dedicates much space and time to discussing how the person and work of Jesus bears on all these issues. Again, with the purpose of encouraging believers to be unwavering in their faith. So we would do well to also slow down to understand these things in their original context in order to see how these truths ought to build up our faith as non-Jewish believers living over 2,000 years after this book was written. So if you will, please follow along with me in Hebrews chapter 10 as I read the first 18 verses. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered, in according, in, uh, are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for always being with us. And we ask that you would now especially be with us. Let your spirit be our teacher. And help us understand your word, Lord, that we may believe it 
and that we may be obedient and that we may be transformed to be more and more uh, reflective of who your son is. We love you and we thank you and we pray in his precious name. Amen. So using his very unique style, the author of Hebrews advances his argument by continuing to compare and contrast the Old Testament with the New Testament. In our passage today, he is particularly interested in comparing the Old Testament sacrifices, plural, with the only New Testament sacrifice of Christ. So in verse 1 of chapter 10, he begins by pointing out what ought to be obvious at this point of his letter, that the ceremonial law of the Old Testament is only a shadow and not the reality of the good things which were inaugurated by the coming of Jesus into the world. All these animal sacrifices were only pointing forward to a time when there would be one final and perfect sacrifice, which was accomplished by the death of Jesus on the cross. How do we know that this is what he means? Because he said in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, which indicates that the good things are inextricably connected with the coming of Jesus. Okay, so the good things are connected with the coming of Jesus. But what are these good things? Well, he tells us in verse 1, the ability to make those who draw near to God perfect. So the ability to make those who draw near to God perfect is only accomplished as a result of Jesus coming into the world. And what he means by this perfection is the eternal redemption and uninhibited access that believers now have to worship the living God, which could only happen because Jesus came to earth and perfectly fulfilled the law and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. At this point, a Jew may respond by claiming that the Jewish people were not left without a way to God, but that they had the Old Testament law and the sacrifices and so on and so forth. But that is exactly the point. Our author counters this argument by pointing out that the fact that there were sacrifices continually being offered year after year proves that these sacrifices could not in and of themselves make the Jewish worshiper perfect. Because if they had, they ought to have come to an end, as he points out in verse 2. You cannot claim that something is perfect and keep tinkering with it. You cannot say, for example, this painting is perfect and then continue to use your paint and paintbrush to make changes to the painting. The fact that you are still working on it proves that it's not perfect because it does not yet appear as you have envisioned it in your mind when you started. So again, the continual offerings, uh, offering of sacrifices proved that perfection had not yet been attained under the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Not only that, but instead of perfecting the worshiper, these sacrifices continually reminded the worshiper that he was imperfect. Because if he had been perfected, like we said a minute ago, then he would need no more sacrifices. But in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement was a yearly ritual, constantly reminding both the priest and the worshiper of their sin and of their imperfect state before God. At this point, as a Christian, you may be wondering how that is different from our Christian experience. 
where we are constantly repenting of our sins, which implies that we are constantly reminding ourselves of our sins. Well, here's the difference. When God spoke of the new covenant that he would inaugurate in the coming of Christ, God said, as we read in Hebrews 10, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So as Christians, we should be daily repenting of our sins. But if God himself chooses to forget our sins, so should we. In fact, when we as Christians keep dwelling on our old sins, it is usually because Satan himself, the accuser, he is trying to remind us of our sins to create guilt that leads to despair. But when the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of sin, it is so that we can repent of those sins, grow in our walk with God, be filled with hope, and continue pressing forward. So as a believer, if you choose to constantly replay your old sins before you like a movie, know that you are doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. Because as far as God is concerned, if you are in Christ, it is just as if you have never sinned. Do not take that good thing, as our author would call it, for granted. Because the Jews of the Old Testament would have given anything to be able to have their consciences cleansed in that way. But they could not. And they were constantly reminded that they could not. Think about it. Don't take it for granted. Moving on to verse 3, we see that our author is pointing out what again should be obvious by now, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He explains the ineffectiveness of the blood of bulls and goats by making a comparison with the ultimate and perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. So he goes on to say in verses 5 to 7, consequently, or therefore, that when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. These are the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Our author here attributes these words to Jesus in order to show that unlike the sacrifices of dumb animals like bulls and goats, Jesus offered an infinitely better sacrifice, which is his, is his willing submission to the will of God. What differentiates the sacrifice of Jesus from the Old Testament sacrifices is that Jesus was willing, obedient, and he is a moral, spiritual being. On the other hand, the animal sacrifices that were sacrificed according to the law were neither willing nor were they offering themselves out of obedience and they did not satisfy the moral and spiritual need required for atonement. So when Jesus says, I have come to do your will, he is talking about the kind of sacrifice that only he can offer. And he is talking about the only kind of sacrifice that can truly take away sins, and cleanse the consciences of believers, making them right with God. In verses 8 to 10, our author explains that by a single act of obedience on the part of Christ, Jesus brought to an end all the Old Testament sacrifices. But let us explore a little more 
this idea that God did not desire sacrifices and offerings and that he had no pleasure in burnt offerings because this seems to go against what our author himself acknowledges in verse 8 that these are offered in accordance with the law. So if these sacrifices were offered in accordance with the law and the law was given to the people of Israel by God then why is God not pleased with them? Before answering this question we need to notice that this concept of God not being pleased with burnt offerings nor desiring sacrifices and other offerings is not unique to the book of Hebrews nor is it simply a New Testament idea. In the Old Testament we see the prophet Samuel expressing the same idea when talking to King Saul. Before going to battle with the Amalekites, King Saul was instructed by Samuel that God requires the king to devote everything to destruction. Everything that belongs to the Amalekites has to be destroyed. And this was to be done as a punishment for their sins. This included all people, all animals, no exceptions. But after the victory, the people of Israel kept the best sheep and oxen that belonged to the Amalekites. They did not destroy these animals according to the word of the Lord. When Samuel the prophet confronted the king about the sin of disobedience, King Saul said, we did devote the Amalekites to destruction. But notice what he says as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In other words, take it easy Samuel, we have gotten around this problem of not completely obeying God by sacrificing from the best of the spoils to your God. But listen to Samuel's response in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 22, the very following verse. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel is telling the king, you are missing the point. Sacrificing the best of these animals does not delight the Lord. But what does delight the Lord is obeying and listening to the voice of God. That is far better than anything you can sacrifice and offer to God. Again, we see the same idea expressed in David's great psalm of repentance for his, uh, for his uh, sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51. We read in verses 16 and 17, David saying, addressing God, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is saying, that he cannot be made right with God by simply sacrificing animals to God. But that a heart change has to take place. An internal change indicating that the sinner is truly repentant for his sin. So again, the idea of God not being pleased with animal sacrifices has its origin in the Old Testament itself before we see it in the New Testament or in the book of Hebrews. But the question still stands. Then why did the law, which was given by God himself, prescribe the sacrifices? The answer lies in understanding what the law was designed for. 
In essence, the law was foreshadowing the greater reality of Christ's sacrifice. And so its sacrifices and offerings were not pleasing in and of themselves, but they were only pleasing to God insofar as they pointed forward to the ultimate perfect sacrifice of Christ. These sacrifices were intended to teach the worshippers about the seriousness of sins and the cost of forgiveness. Therefore, the way that the sacrifices were prescribed by God was acceptable to God. But the way people offered their sacrifices was not acceptable or pleasing to God. Because they did everything in a purely ritualistic manner, without their heart being involved in the process. There was no repentance and there was no obedience. It became an empty ritual devoid of any significance. It is simply, they simply saw it as a transaction. I do, I get. So rather than using the law for its intended purpose to show the person the seriousness of sin and the cost of forgiveness and the need for God's grace, many instead wrongly and I underline that, that wrongly used the law and the sacrifices as the very means by which they were made righteous before God. Now the moral law of God is great in helping identify sin, but it is utterly incapable of dealing with or fixing that sin problem because the law was simply not designed for that purpose. It cannot work. Likewise, the ceremonial law was supposed to teach the people how dangerous and serious sin is and how costly it was to deal with sin in order to obtain forgiveness. But the ceremonial law as well could not fix man's sin problem. It could not offer him uninhibited access to God. On the other hand, when Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law, appears, he does what the law was incapable of doing. He deals with our sin problem. He remedies our sin problem. And those who draw near to God through faith in Him and Him alone are saved to the uttermost, as our author says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. They are justified, meaning that God declares them innocent. And by faithfully following Jesus, believers are also sanctified meaning that they are being transformed daily to look more and more like Jesus himself. Not only that, but they also enjoy unlimited and uninhibited access to God. That is a package deal, if you will, to use a salesman, uh, salesman's language. But it is. Christ spiritually heals us, and he maintains and guides our spiritual maturity but only if we remain faithful to him. Jesus is the one who starts the good work in us, and he is the one who brings it to completion. The author then moves in verses 11 to 14 to comparing the, old, uh, comparing the actions and postures of the Old Testament priests with Jesus, who is our great high priest. So whereas the Old Testament priests, A, stood, B, offered daily sacrifices, and C, still failed to take away the sins of the people, Jesus, A, sat down because B, he had offered a single sacrifice that C, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Notice also in verse 13 that the work of Jesus accomplished a victory over the devil, whereas the work of the Old Testament priesthood could not. For them, the battle with the devil was always raging and continuing on. But with Jesus, the battle is over. It is like the Olympics. At the end of a particular competition, we all know who the winner is. But we also still sit glued to the TV waiting for the ceremony to see the winner receive his gold medal while listening to his country's uh, national anthem. Jesus has already defeated the devil, but he is waiting until the time of his ceremony to come back for his bride, the church, made up of those who are eagerly waiting for him, as Pastor Mark reminded us last time. But he's also waiting for that time to come back when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. In verses 15 to 17, our author moves to wrap up this, his argument for this current section by showing the Jewish audience that what he has been telling them is in full accord with what the Old Testament teaches. And that this is what God himself promised long ago through the prophet Jeremiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is telling the people that this promised covenant spoken of in these verses was inaugurated at the coming of Jesus and that now men and women no longer need to look to an external law but that they have God's law placed on their hearts and written on their minds and that unlike the old covenant where there was a reminder of sin every year now God graciously chooses not to remember our sins and our lawless deeds because these sins have been taken away by the once for all death of Jesus on the cross and therefore the debt has been paid on our behalf and we have forgiveness and as he says in verse 18 where there's forgiveness there's no longer an offering for sin this makes sense to us it's just like if we said when the debt has been paid no more payments are necessary now this is profound because this is what the people were struggling with okay many of them could not imagine a relationship with god where there are no sacrifices and offerings of different kinds one commentary that i read was helpful in pointing out that even if there were non-Jews among the audience of this letter, even though they would not have necessarily used the same terminology of sin offering and burnt offering, they would nonetheless be able to follow the logic of the argument found in this passage. Because their old religious backgrounds would also have entailed some sacrifices and some offerings. This is why this book and this passage was needed to tell the people that Jesus is sufficient. There is no further need for more sacrifices and many of the other old external rituals. They are operating under a new covenant mediated by a better high priest who offered one final and perfect sacrifice that pleased God, took away sin, destroyed the devil and perfected his followers. This is what this passage meant for them. But what about us? Before coming to faith in Jesus, none of us offered animal sacrifices, unless you were weird or something like that, but I don't think anyone here would have done that. So how does this apply to us? I would, I'm just thinking about it. How would it apply to us? And I think the way this would apply to us is where you and me, where we still struggle to have our minds 
become renewed by the word of God. It is where we struggle to put off the old ways of thinking about pleasing God. Old ways of thinking that are not in agreement with the word of God. It applies to us whenever we feel like we need anything or anyone beside Jesus in order to be made right with God. God is concerned with our hearts. If our hearts have been cleansed by faith in Jesus, then the actions will follow. However, if we compartmentalize things in our minds, then we also need this same message that this Jewish audience received over 2,000 years ago. To avoid being too abstract, let me give several examples because the tricky thing about this point is that our minds can deceive us by very slight errors in our thinking. So, although many of us claim to be saved by faith in our Lord Jesus, many of us in reality may be thinking and therefore living as if we are saved by faith in Jesus plus something else. Many of us think and therefore act as if we are saved by faith in Jesus plus tithing, plus good works, plus church attendance, plus evangelism, plus acts of kindness to the poor, and so on and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong, these things are good if they are an outflow of a heart that has humbly submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. But these things will damn us if they become, in our minds, co-redeemers with Jesus, God's only begotten Son. God says in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. If all these good things that I just mentioned are not an outflow of your heart, then they have become in your own minds and your sight as co-redeemers with Jesus. And if they have become co-redeemers and co-equals with Jesus, then they have become idols. And if they have become idols, then God is not being glorified and praised as he ought to be, as the one and only worthy of all praise. Jesus is sufficient. Therefore, submit to him and all else will follow. Also remember that Jesus has done everything needed in order to deliver us from our slavery to Satan. I will not spend much time on this point because in our Sunday school classes we discussed, uh, we discussed this point several weeks ago. And the point is this. We are under new management. We have a new landlord. Payment to the old landlord is optional, but neither rational nor mandatory, meaning we are now slaves of God, slaves of Christ, and slaves to righteousness. So we no longer have to obey Satan as he tempts us to sin by focusing on indulging our flesh. We can, and if we're honest, we all do still sin, but that does not make sense, nor is it something that we are forced to do under compulsion, because now we belong to another. So again, Jesus Christ has done everything that is needed on our behalf to deliver us from our bondage to Satan. Jesus has also done everything we need to take away our sins. Christians have the audacity to believe that in Christ, God has forgiven us all our sins, past, present, and future. 
All our sins have been dealt with on the cross of Christ. We no longer have to keep reminding ourselves of our old sins. Alistair Begg, a faithful pastor and Bible teacher, was contemplating this truth, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, God, who by nature cannot forget, chooses not to remember our sins. And we, who are by nature forgetful, cannot but remember our sins. If you truly believe that you are forgiven, then you will find it easier to not dwell on your sins, and you will not keep your sins ever before you. Jesus has also delivered us from the righteous judgment of God, and this point obviously follows from the previous point. If God has forgiven us our sins because we are in Christ, then God also spared us his righteous judgment against sin because Jesus was judged in our place. All these truths bring us to the application of this passage in our lives today. If we believe that Jesus has done everything that is needed on our behalf to deliver us from our bondage to Satan, to deliver us from the righteous judgment of God, to deliver us from our slavery to sin, and to deliver us from our own faulty ways of thinking about how we can be made righteous before God, then I think we will be successful in accomplishing three things. And the first is that we will be steadfast and unwavering in our Christian faith. We will be able to say with full confidence with the Apostle Paul, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 to 39. Nothing and no one will shake our faith in Jesus. We will be steadfast in our faith. That's the first point. Second, we will approach God with confidence. As the author of Hebrews himself says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach God with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Third and finally, we will rest securely in the work of Christ. We will rest securely in the work of Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. There is no rest outside of Christ. Let's pray.